All right, it's Bartender Journey, episode number 35. Vince here. Vano's not here with me today, but I have a great interview coming up with Patrick Garrett, the bourbon man. He runs a blog called uh, Bourbon Banter. So I'm going to get him on the line via Skype. Hello? Hey, it's Vince. Hey, Vince. Patrick, how are you? Patrick, thank you for coming on, sir. Oh, my pleasure. Wow. So you're in uh, St. Louis, is that correct? That's correct. All right. And how did you get interested, so interested in bourbon? Let's first talk about your um, blog. It's Bourbon Banter, which correct. I forget how I discovered it exactly, but it's a great blog all Thank about you. bourbon. And uh, how did you get into it? How did you get interested in bourbon? You know, I uh, work in uh, digital advertising, so... You know, like uh, all good advertisers, my colleagues and I at work were big fans of Mad Men. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we were like, you know, if they can get half crocked during the day, why can't we? Yeah, I agree. You know? And so, you know, we kind of got this idea. We're like, well, one guy was like, if you get a bar for the office, I'll go buy a couple bottles. And HR was in on this conversation. And HR looked at us with kind of a blank look and said, okay, what the hell? <laughs> um, and so I went on eBay, grabbed, a, bought one of those vintage-looking globe bars, you know, that spins with the world map on it. Mm. And uh, got one of those. And then the guy brought in a couple bottles. And that kind of started, uh, you know, an informal bourbon club at, at our work. And so I started getting in that way and, you know, I had used to travel a lot for work and I used to get entertained, you know, go out to dinner with Googles and Yahoos and people like that. And uh-huh. I had gotten to the point where, you know, I wasn't necessarily waking up the morning hungover, but I was waking up really tired, you know, drinking a lot of mixed drinks. And I said, you know, I got to stop that. So that kind of coincided with this other thing and decided I had to kind of pick a signature drink. And so bourbon was it. And so I just kind of got into it more and we had the club. So everybody's sitting around talking, trying to learn. And it snowballed from there, and I uh, changed jobs a couple years ago, brought the brought a new bar, bought a new one, because I don't believe in taking the bar and making grown men cry, so <laughs> I, got a, I got a new one, and I think I was just about two weeks into that job, and um, I had a Facebook page for my friends that we drank together, I had about 30 people on it, and I went to an event that night, met a guy from Louisville uh, who's big in social media. And he gave me a copy of his book and signed it and, you know, a little thing to bourbon. We drank some bourbon. I got home and I had gotten my first issue of the bourbon review in the mail. Mm-hmm. So I took a photo of the bourbon review in the book signed to me mentioning bourbon. And I said, this is quite a night, posted on Facebook page. And a couple of days later, the boys over at the bourbon review, I guess, saw it. And they gave me a shout out on their Facebook page. Nice. Said tens of thousands of followers. Right. And like in 24 hours, I went from like 30 followers to like 300. All right. Nice. And People were listening to what I said, and one thing led to another, and a couple months later, I started writing a blog. Cool. It's been snowballing ever since. Well, I must say, you said you, said you had to choose a signature drink. I think you chose a, you chose wisely there. So. Absolutely. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I, we were talking a little bit back and forth in email, and uh, I think there's a lot of misconceptions about bourbon, and people, a segment of the people out there, even working in our business, who uh, don't quite understand exactly what bourbon is, what qualifies whiskey as a bourbon. And uh, so I'd love to hear uh, your take on that. Sure, absolutely. Well, you know, I think as a lot of people have learned is, you know, not all whiskeys are bourbons. Right. um, But all bourbons are whiskey. So bourbon is a classification inside the whiskey family, which, you know, other whiskeys are Scotch or Irish or or Japanese, um, Canadian whiskey, uh, even, you know, rye whiskeys, things of that nature. So bourbon's a, a member of the whiskey family. But to be bourbon, there's a couple things that have to happen. You know, first of all, it has to be made um, with at least 51% corn, and that's really kind of the big, the big thing there. Of you know, if it's got to be 51% corn, and then the remainder 
you know, is usually rye um, or wheat as a secondary ingredient, um, and then a small percentage of barley. Right. Somebody explained it to me that uh, that comes that goes all the way back to the history of our country. Really, fifty-one percent corn. You know, corn goes back to the Pilgrims and the you know the whole history of America. So <laughs> I don't know how true that is, but so that's what somebody. Well, told I mean, you, you you know, the history of distilling is you distill with what you've got available. Right. Right. And, you know, you look at, you know, everything from what's available to what do I have surplus of? Mm-hmm. You know, it's easier to transport and trade liquor than it is the actual grain. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you have surplus, you know, what's what's going to get you not only the efficiency and, and also money. So a lot of it ties in there. But when you when you have people come over and you're the abundant grain is corn, um, you're, you're tend to, to go with that. Right. Uh-huh. And so, you know, you don't necessarily make a conscious decision one day and say, you know what? I'm going to use corn. <laughs> you know, you say, hey, what do I got? And, and yeah, you make it. So that's, that's how that starts it. Right. Right. Um, after that, um, you know, it when bourbon gets distilled, it can't be distilled to, to any higher than 160 proof mm-hmm. or 80, 80% alcohol by volume. <clears throat> and this is important because the higher you go in distilling it, the higher proof, at some point you're going to get out, all the flavors are going to be gone. So when you think about vodka and the fact that it's supposed to be a neutral grain spirit, no taste, no color, no smell, um, they're distilling off the off the still up to about 190 proof. Mm-hmm. So this is a bit distinct different that they kind of back off that a little bit. It still leaves the essential flavors from the grain, which is you know part of the uh, the, the deal with whiskeys. Um, and then when they put it into the barrels themselves, they have to uh, proof that down, and they can't go in at higher than 125 proof or 62.5% alcohol by volume. So that's a key requirement as well. So come off the still at 160 proof, into the barrel at 125 proof, and then when they take it out and they bottle it, it has to be at least 80 proof. So you'll have a lot of bourbons that are uh, one of the popular trends, which I happen to love, are barrel strength bourbons or Mm -hmm. cask strength. And these are when they take them out of the bottle and they don't add water, they don't proof them down, and they come out 134 proof, 140 proof, um, big and bold and um, very tasty, but very hot as well. So it's not for everybody. But bourbon has to be in the bottle at least 80 proof. Right. And then the other key things are that it has to be aged in a brand new oak barrel that's been charred. So that's key as well. Um, so no used barrels for bourbon and, you know, all those used barrels got to go somewhere. So a lot of them go to uh, over overseas, go to Scotland and are used in making scotch. They're used in wine production. Mm-hmm. Um, there's obviously big boom in people using them to age beer, uh-huh. um, other foods, making furniture out of it. So um, I don't think anybody 15 years ago would have ever thought the used barrel business would be so lucrative. But it clearly has become that. Yeah, yeah, and then even oh, in the new barrel business as well. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I, I live uh, I live just a little north of uh, Manhattan, and uh, have you heard of um, Hudson Whiskey? Sure. And uh, that so I went up and visited them, and uh, great people and really interesting operation. And uh, but they they realized there's going to be a demand now for barrels, so they got into the they invested in the barrel making business as well. So <laughs> smart guys. <laughs> no, no, absolutely. I mean, you know, obviously every piece of the production that you can have uh, some ownership in not only can make you money, but also helps protect you a little bit. That's, um, right? that's right. Because that's right. as demand grows, you know, somebody could become a better customer than you if you, if you don't watch your back too much. Other things for bourbon that are, that are key um, is, you know, it has to be uh, made in the United States. It has to be a distinct product of the U S so common, belief is that it has to be made in Kentucky. Right. Um, you know, legally that's not true. You know, 95% of bourbon is made in Kentucky 
And some people argue that only real bourbon is made in Kentucky, but legally it just has to be made inside the United States. Right. So that's a, a big myth for people to understand that you can, you know, you can get some really good bourbons um, that aren't made in Kentucky. Right. So, I mean, it's a good sign of quality when it says it is, but, um, you know, you don't bet money saying that it has to be there. That's right. for sure. Right. Yeah. I think that's a very big misconception. Uh, Absolutely. And, and then just, you know, back to that barrel thing, because I think this is another one. There's no requirement around how long it has to be in the barrel. Mm. And this is an interesting one because, you know, a lot of people like, well, I like old bourbons or people like I like a six-year-old bourbon. Um, to be called a bourbon, it's just got to be in the barrel for it could be in there for three minutes and you can call it a bourbon. It won't be a very good bourbon in most people's uh, opinion, but right. it can be called bourbon. So you have a lot of places, you know, Hudson's uh, one of them who have some really young bourbons and you yeah. know, they age them, you know, from anywhere from six months to two years. But they and, use the, you know, um, they use the small casks with, which uh, apparently makes it age a little, a little quicker or take sure. on, take on the, um, not that it ages quicker, but it takes on the characteristics of the barrel quicker because it's a smaller barrel. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, they have distinct flavors. They're, they're different. And I think, you know, and one of the exciting things about bourbon that keeps me going in it is the fact that they're all different. So someone can make one and they age it for two years and, you know, maybe Jim Beam or Wild Turkey doesn't want to put one out that young, but someone else does and it gives you a completely different flavor profile. So there's, it just kind of opens up your options for experimenting and finding what you like. Yeah, yeah. Well, while I was up there at um, Tuttle Hill or the Hudson Distillery, uh, you could actually buy a bourbon-making kit. And what that is is uh, their corn whiskey, which is the clear whiskey that, as it comes off the still, un, un, unflavored – not unflavored, but uh, uncolored and um, totally clear. And you buy a little barrel. It's a one-liter barrel. And uh, so I put my corn whiskey in there, and it turns into bourbon because it's in the barrel, as you said. So it, it's fun because I can try it um, as it ages. At the, the longer it stays in the barrel, obviously, the, the tastes change. So it's a, kind of a fun little experiment. I take a little taste every, uh, you know, a couple times a week. So that's fun. Very cool. Yeah, yeah. That's, a, that's another thing that a lot of people don't realize, that all distilled spirits come off the still clear. And the, where's the color come from? The barrel. Mm -hmm. Right. Absolutely. And that's why, you know, when you get, you know, like the Hudson baby bourbon is very light in color. Right. But then you get something like a Elijah Craig 18 or even Elijah Craig 21 and they're so much darker. And right. absolutely that, that comes from the wood because they inside that barrel when they char it, you know, they create that external char. But as that char kind of recedes into the wood, um, they create sort of a caramelized layer that they refer to as the red line. Mm. And what happens is in the in the the rack houses where the barrels are stored, um, and this is you know Kentucky. One of the reasons why Kentucky's the hotbed is the the climate change there is so good because what happens is in the, the summer when it gets hot, uh, the the liquor in the barrel expands and it pushes into the wood and it goes through that 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 charred layer into that red line, and it starts picking up the flavors of that caramelized layer of wood, mm. and then in the winter it contracts and it, so it passes back out. So imagine over 12 seasons of in and out, in and out, in and out, going through that, you pick up a lot of flavors, you pick up a lot of complexity. And that's really kind of the, the finesse and the art of what goes into bourbon. Hmm. And that's what makes it so, so unique. And, you know, what's interesting is once those barrels are used and they get shipped overseas and let's say they get used for scotch, right. um, that barrel doesn't have quite the upfront charge mm -hmm. um, that it did when it was first put out. So, it, it's more gentle in the aging. So, you know, they've done experiments where actually I think it was Jim Beam. They took Jim Beam barrel bourbon, I'm sorry, barrels of bourbon and sent them to Scotland and, and one of their distilleries over there brought scotch over to Kentucky. And the idea was mm -hmm. how would they age differently? And mm -hmm. I think it was something like for every year 
of aging in the U United States, um, it's equivalent to about three to three to four years of aging in, in Scotland because no th the climate over there is so much milder mm. um, and it's cooler. So you don't get those strong shifts. So it takes longer to get the same sort of experience out of the wood. Plus, they tend to use all use barrels. So um, they don't get that up. You know, it's not as intense up front and the, the back and forth and the heat and the extremities aren't as much. So it takes a longer time to age. So if you have a 12-year-old bourbon, you know, it, this is overly simplified, but you could argue that that's got about the same aging experience as a 36-year-old scotch. Hmm. You know, it's not exact. So, you right. know, I know some, <laughs> some, some, some of my uh, whiskey geek friends might take me to point on that, but it gives you an idea of the difference in aging. And that's, you know, why you don't see a lot of 35-year-old bourbons just because it, it's too much. It gets too woody. It, right. You know, rarely do you get one that tastes that good and rarely do you get one that has enough liquor left in the barrel after that long of time to produce uh, a bottling. Right, right. Well, they uh, and so a little bit evaporates as time goes on, right? And it's called yeah. angel share. Is that correct? Right. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Well, cool. I, and um, so I see on your bio that you spent some time in Japan learning about Japanese <laughs> drinking culture. I really am so curious about that. Yeah, my parent, my parents didn't know that was the reason. So, but, you know, but we're okay now. The cat's yeah. out of the bag. Right. <laughs> So what is – tell me a little bit about Japanese drinking culture. <laughs> sure. So I went over there when I was 18, uh, right out of high school as an exchange student. And, you know, I, I grew up amazingly. You know, I'm kind of a – one of those interesting ones that grew up in high school. I had a ton of friends. You know, we'd go to tons of parties. But none of us really drank. So a drinking neophyte, if you will. So I went over to Japan and, you know, they, they send you over as part of the Rotary Exchange. They say, now – don't drink if it's illegal and don't get in trouble, blah, blah, blah. Well, I get to Japan and immediately all these men who are in the rotary and in, in senior positions, when they take you out, it, it's all about drinking, right? Uh -huh. um, it was all about drinking and all about smoking cigarettes. So I focus on, on the, the drinking portion of it. And, you know, everywhere you went, they were giving, giving you drinks. And, you know, at this time I'm 18, so I think the drinking age there was 20. Um, but, you know, it's much more loosely defined there. You know, most people aren't driving, so there's not concerns around that. Mm. And it's just it's just different. So everywhere we'd go, they would, they would do this. And so you, you kind of got into this ritual where you would go to an event and get there. There'd be a what looked like a highball glass, but it was a beer glass. And so you'd have that there and then there'd be a glass there for whiskey and water, which was which was huge. You might have a, a sake glass. You know, I had a couple experiences where we would go to events and, you know, one in particular, we were, we were was actually the second time I went to Japan for college. And we were taking a, a driving tour up in Hokkaido with uh, the judo teacher from the college. And his brother was surname is Sato. And his brother was the Olympic coach for years for judo. So he's his as his brother, he's fairly well known and respected. So we're going through this town and we stop in this one. He knows the mayor and the mayor's like, okay, you got six Americans with you and some, some teachers. Let's, let's have a party. Let's, <laughs> you know, cause they're very gracious, very welcoming. So we go to this building that's clearly set up for just this. And down the, down the room in the middle of the table is this giant grill table. And so we're, which means the center of the table are all hot grills. All right. Think okay. of a griddle in front of you. Okay. You've got a little bit of lip to it where you get your food and they start bringing all this food and you cook it in front of yourself and they eat it over rice. Well, we had a pint glass, then we had a wine glass, <laughs> then we had sake glasses, and they keep filling them. And in Japan, if a glass is empty, you're supposed to fill it for the person that you're by. So a glass should. So if you actually want to stop drinking, you leave your glass full. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the U.S., you drain it and you might turn it over something like that. But there, if you empty it, they will fill it. So the mayor decided after we ate dinner, he started going around and he stopped at each one of us at the table. And would do a drink with us. And we either had to drink a full glass of beer or a full glass of wine <laughs> or like two shots of sake. And he wouldn't move on to the next person until you did that. 
you know, it's just a, a strong part of the culture. Um, it's a way to blow off steam. I mean, colleagues go after work. They get a little crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it was a lot of fun as well. But, it, you know, the funny thing is I'm so into whiskey and bourbon now. But when I was there, I wouldn't, I wouldn't touch it. Whiskey and water was a huge part of what, you know, they drink. Um, but I, it wasn't something I was in at the time. So it would be kind of interesting to go back now. And have that same experience. Yeah, I bet. Uh, yeah, Japanese uh, whiskey is, is its own animal, which I really don't know anything about, honestly. But uh, that's that's a whole other thing to explore, I suppose, someday. <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, yeah. So, um, do you have any particular brands that you uh, that you like when it comes to bourbons? You know, both on the high end and the bargain end. Sure. No, that's a great question. You know, I mean, I think I. I think the easy answer would be, and you know, I'll give it just because I'll get it out the thing, but it's not necessarily my answer. I mean, everybody clamors for the Pappy Van Winkles of the world, and you know, they're they're good bourbons, they're excellent bourbons. I think everybody should try them, but um, it's just not worth the fight right now. I yeah, mean, we're in we're in the fall release season; they're coming out, um, and you know, it's 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 the unicorn, right? And, yeah. yeah. Um, I've just, you know, I've got a lot of friends and I'm in parts of lots of groups around where people are always hunting and dusty hunting, as they call it. And they're getting bottles and they're trading. And, um, and I think that's great that those those outlets exist. I just don't have the, the the energy to do it. And I think there's enough fantastic bourbon out there that is a little more accessible that uh, people should should try. So to that point, I mean, at the low end, um, you know, I long enjoyed things like Elmer T. Lee. Um, which, you know, was named after Elmer T. Lee, who was the creator of Blanton Single Barrel. Okay. Uh, Elmer, unfortunately, just passed away um, recently. Um, but his bourbon is, you know, the good news is this bourbon is going to live on because there was a question because in his contract when they created it and named it after him, he had the rights to, to sample everything to taste mm. everything that they bottled. Mm. And with his passing, the question was, well, will they still do it? Um, confirmation just came out from Buffalo Trace that they're going to continue, which is great. But that's a bourbon that's very, you know, I mean, two years ago you were buying it for $22 a bottle. It's about 26 where I live, um, and the price has gone up a little bit. But it's a great it's a great uh, bourbon. It's the same mash bill as Blanton's at about half the cost. So that's, that's a good low-cost go-to. I'm also a big fan of the Weller line of bourbons out of Buffalo Trace. That, that's uh, weeded bourbons. Mm-hmm. So they have their antique Weller, which is 107 proof, which is really good, and that's you know once again under the $25 price point. 12 year Weller is also excellent. Um, it's about 25 bucks as well. Getting harder to get. Lots of conspiracy theories of you know whenever there's an you know shortage of any of these, are they are they siphoning it off for pappies, things of that nature. Uh-huh. So that's kind of fun to see all that. But those are kind of some of my low end go tos. I mean, one of my favorite of all time, um, which was in the mid range, was Elijah Craig 18, and that's from Heaven Hill. Mm-hmm. And fantastic bourbon, you know, I was picking it up for about $50 and $50 for an 18 year old bourbon. I mean, yeah. there's nothing bad about that, 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 that equation, right. except that they decided that they were going to stop releasing it and they started releasing, you know, a 20 and now a 21, 22. And they're, so they're releasing older expressions of the bourbon. So obviously the 18 is, is being ported to that. But the bad thing is they, the price doubled overnight wow. i've tried some of the new ones and they're not bad but they start getting a little oaky to me they get a little a little overaged in my opinion and then when you factor in the doubling in the price and even more in some cases it just you know the the value ratio kind of diminishes for me i mean they're great bourbons and once again if you have the means try it have it i think you know, the, the more that you try at all ends of the spectrum the better you're going to understand what you really like and you're going to be able to hone in something that really fits with your taste profile in your pocketbook mm-hmm. um and then you know when you start getting up to that high range though you know the 80 to 90 dollar range you know things like uh, a lot of the small roses they're coming out now actually just started releasing at their 
small batch limited edition, uh, which is fantastic. Um, I was lucky enough to get a, a pre-release sample, and it's probably the best bourbon I've tasted this year really? that's being released this year. Jim Rutledge, the master distiller for Wars, just did a masterful job. He's a really nice guy, too. He's humble. He's accessible um, and has done a great job reviving that brand and uh, getting them back in the U.S. market. So that's that's a good find. That, But that's, you know, once again, the myth around that one is already getting to Pappy's proportions that if you get a bottle of that, you're going to be pretty lucky. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at the, also at the high end and sort of hard to get is one of my all-time favorite is um, George T. Stag, mm. which is a barrel-proof bourbon. Um, once again, released by Buffalo Trace. It's part of their yearly release, what's called the Antique Collection, which is a collection of four bourbons that are released once a year. And this bourbon is just, when you talk about rack-stacked and packed with flavor, um, it, it, it's got it in spades. It's it's one that, you know, it's strong. I think I've got one that's, you know, 136 proof or so and a lot of people cut it with water to get to where they like but i just like pouring in a glass and eat and just sipping on it slow and it's just you know it's just amazing i mean quite frankly it's hard to hard to explain it without tasting it and whatnot but it's a great one too and once again it's reaching mythical proportions as well and everyone's waiting you know following trucks for the deliveries and things of that nature which gets kind of comical (laughs) so if you get one you're lucky um And then you can always go in the secondary market, but you're going to pay a premium and you got to be a little educated to do that. And that's quote unquote technically not legal, I suppose. But um, another great one to get. So, but there's stuff all along the line. I mean, people are releasing new things every day and yeah. it's just a really fun time. Yeah, yeah, it really is. And there, and uh, a couple other um, bargain ones come to mind for, for, for me. Uh, the Buffalo Trace, just their, their straight ahead everyday Buffalo Trace, is, it's a great bargain. Mm-hmm. And, Absolutely. Uh, I like I like the 1792. Yeah, the Ridgemont Reserve. Yeah, yeah, I think no, that's great excellent. for the price. I think it's no, awesome. absolutely. And, you know, um, it's a high rye bourbon right there. Um, oh, is that right? Mm. Yeah. So, you know, your Maker's Mark, your Wellers, your Pappy, those are weeded. So, you know, they put more wheat than rye, uh, and you know, the wheat is really kind of the secondary grain in those, and has a little bit of softer, a little bit of a sweeter flavor. Whereas the rye, like the 1792s. Uh, you know, things like Basil Hayden's, which is part of the small batch collection, Jim Beam, or even Four Roses that I was talking about, or Bullet, which is really popular, um, yeah. are higher rye recipes. So you're going to get more pepper, you're going to get more spice mm-hmm. on those. Yeah. Um, and, you know, those are, you know, great foundationals for cocktails too, especially right. when you want a little bit of punch. So I love a great Manhattan yeah. that's, you know, got a rye bourbon in it, like a 1792. Oh, I had one the other day at um, Employees Only. Are you familiar with that bar in Manhattan? I'm not. It, it's uh, kind of a famous one in the bartender world. It won Best Cocktail Bar at, at Tales of the Cocktail uh, war, a couple of years ago. And um, anyway, I, I just went in, and I they're famous for making great cocktails, but not being overly, you know, mixology geeky about it. And I uh, it. so I went in and I just said, I just want something great made with whiskey. And he made me the most amazing Manhattan that I've ever had in my life. Nice. Uh, you know what he put in, in as secret ingredient? He put in a little tiny dash, you know, about the same amount of bitters. He used about mm-hmm. the same amount of uh, Gramonier, and it was fabulous. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it was. Nice. Uh, yeah, I had quite a few of those. <laughs> <And> <laughs> well, then, it's good that you remembered the special uh, secret ingredient. Yeah, yeah. After and then at, at one point I said, you know, um, I should try something else. This guy's an amazing bartender. You know, I said, let, let me try something else with whiskey. And he made me something else. And it, 
I went back to the Manhattan because it was just so incredible. I mean, if you can get a good one, it's it. Yeah, you're not going to want to stray too far from it. No, no, it's an amazing drink, and uh, we've talked about it before on our podcast. We had um, the guys from Via Vermouth on okay. on the show, which is a really great high end vermouth made in um, in California, and uh, you know, a lot of times the vermouth will just sit there in the speed rack for years, you know, and people, people you, you only use a dash because people don't like it because it tastes terrible because it's been sitting there so long and it's really supposed to be refrigerated and it's not and it doesn't last forever. So uh, when you get it, when you get a good vermouth and a, and a good whiskey together, you can't go wrong. Uh, absolutely. In fact, I always find myself asking them to add a little bit more vermouth to it. Yeah, that's right. So, yeah. As long as it's not, as you said, gone south. Yeah, yeah. So uh, that leads us towards cocktails, bourbon cocktails. Mm-hmm. Um, what's your thought on that? I know you, as a enthusiast, you probably drink it neat all the time, as do I. <laughs> but um, we're a bartender show, so uh, it's actually, um, you know, it, it, bourbon's actually a good introduction for a lot of people into the whiskey world because, um, you know, scotch is an acquired taste for sure. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, lower end whiskeys are hard to drink, <laughs> even right. even mixed with, you know, even in a cocktail. But um, I think, you know, I think a, a nice bourbon cocktail is a good introdu- introduction for people that are scared, scared, for lack of a better word, of whiskey, you know. So uh, do you have any um, any cocktails you'd like to tell us about or any recipes or? Sure. No, I, but, you know, for. I totally agree. I think you know it, bourbon with its sweeter profile and and some notes that people are very familiar with, you know, maple and vanilla and things like that, makes it very approachable. I mean, a Manhattan obviously is a great place to go. Um, some people tend to to like you know a, an old fashioned as as well. Um, you know, for me, I I do prefer simpler things. Um, yeah. So I, I'm not you know, a, a true cocktail aficionado, to be honest, as you say, because I tend to drink stuff neat. And plus the whole fact that I, reason I got into it was I was trying to stay away from the sugar. Um, I actually got to go to, there's a new whiskey house uh, restaurant opening up in St. Louis. So actually be the first really whiskey forward establishment, if you can believe that here in town. Mm. And um, they uh, had a cocktail sampling. They, so I got invited and they had I think it was something like 26 different cocktails that they're considering putting on the bar. So myself and a, and a small group of others sat down and we got to sample all 26 and provide a detailed feedback, things of that nature. Um, and once again, their their approach, obviously, as you said, was looking at how to bring people into the category right. when they're scared as hell. Right. <laughs> um, and so they had some really great stuff. So, you know, I it's kind of interesting. Uh, a lot of times people are looking for something and it's simple, straightforward. Um, so like a horse's neck is, is, is great in my opinion. So throw some bourbon into a glass, add some ginger ale, put a couple shots, uh, a couple drops of bitters in there uh, over ice. And to me, that's a fantastic drink because it packs a lot of, you know, kind of zest to it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, especially if you use instead of like a ginger ale, you use like a ginger beer. So it's got a real good zip to it with the bitters mixed into it. Um, and that's a great drink because – um, it's, you know, gives you a lot of liquid volume and right. you can obviously back off the bourbon to, to, to taste and to, you know, however many you're going to have. So that's been one that I've had a lot of success giving to people to try to get them in. And, and, and if you don't have bitters laying around, obviously just, you know, uh, put some ginger ale and make it a highball, right. you know, which right. is a soda, that stuff. So that's a good way to get people into it as well. And I find that that works really well. And then things, you know, I keep a bottle of a Buffalo Tracer in hand for just that, mm-hmm. for, for mixing. You know, a lot of people keep a thing of Jim Beam around or whatever. Um, I try to, you know, beans, I mean, solid bourbon, obviously they didn't be, get successful for having you know, something right. that wasn't good, but it's a little too earthy for me. So a Buffalo Trace kind of that, that entry level is a, is a great one for, for that mixing. I think it works really, really well. Yeah. Um, so do that, you know, we've, uh, 
you know, recently uh, added um, 10 or so additional people to the blog who are writing now, um, went through a whole recruiting process. And they're bringing a lot of different um, cocktail ideas to, to the site. So I'm kind of leaning on them a little bit for, for some of their favorites right. as well. But um, we also had a gentleman like, who offered up, said, hey, I'll make a, a, a cocktail for you guys, like a signature cocktail. And I said, well, I want you to use something that most people don't use. So I said Antique Weller. Um, bourbon and I said and I want it to be something that people can make at home and make it accessible so created something that we're you know just calling the bourbon jam and it's straightforward um, and it, it you know bourbon honey grape jam mm-hmm. and lemon juice and yeah. shaking it up and straining it out and pouring it over ice and topping it off with a little soda and it's almost got a punch profile to it mm-hmm. um, but mm-hmm. stop short of being that overly cloying sweetness to it um, very refreshing, very accessible. So that's that's one that I kind of like it because it's not once again it's not overly sweet, um, and I could still taste all the ingredients. But probably if I look over the last twelve months or so, the one drink recipe that because I get a lot submitted to me from the bourbon, um, the oh, brands themselves, right, right, to, to, to try out. And the one though that I think really surprised me um, was this recipe from Wild Turkey called they call it Liberty. It was for the Fourth of July. Okay. And, you know, it was basically taking uh, – they were pushing the American honey, which is their bourbon honey liqueur. Yeah. Um, which, interesting enough, has been around for decades. But everybody thinks it just came out to really? the market. Oh. Um, they, yeah, they <laughs> they had made it – I think it was back in the 70s. Um, and okay. then they shelved it. So they reformulated a little bit to make it a little more sweeter – a little sweeter. And then they rebottled it in kind of a sexy bottle. And now they're going after sort of the uh, – you know, the, cr- the shot crowd at the bars, you know, playing yeah. sports, you know, that kind of stuff. But you take that, take wild turkey, you know, um, regular, which, whichever proof you like, uh, iced tea, mm-hmm. lemonade, and then a bunch of fresh basil mm. and put it together and serve it over ice. And my wife and I, my wife doesn't like bourbon, um, which makes that's a whole nother conversation. But we made a picture of that. And I think in about an hour or so it was gone. Um and it was just phenomenal. And, you know, not being a mixologist type of guy, I, I never thought, I mean, this will be, you know, second nature to you guys. I never thought about putting basil in a drink. Yeah. Um, but now I'm a basil junkie. It's great. If, and, if you, you know, cilantro is another basil one. It, and yeah, I'm just like, oh, my God, I love it. Yeah, yeah. Cilantro is another one. It's You wouldn't, okay. you'd be surprised, but it's great in drinks. Um, yeah, and, and, and that's cool. So I like, you know, that kind of stuff. So there's a guy here in St. Louis who was in the um, Four Roses cocktail competition. He's a, a fairly new bartender. Um, and he entered and he got entered and went down. He was one of the 10 finals. I think he t- took third. Um, and he made a drink. Um, and, you know, I was watching him make it, but not watching it. So I didn't see everything going in. And once again, there was some basil in it. I immediately picked up on it. I was like, oh, I like it just because of that. <laughs> but, you know, so that's pretty good. But I, I take it in, you know, I don't drink a lot of them, but uh, I'm always willing to try them because I think it's really fun how people are bringing stuff together. And uh, whiskey sours as well. Yeah. Yeah. And especially really fresh ones that are actually sour and not sweet. Exactly. Exactly. Um, that gets my attention. I had one the other night when I did that tasting. They made they brought one out and I was like, oh, whiskey sour. Yeah. yeah. And I took it and I was like, I mean, my mouth just puckered up and I was like, oh, this is fantastic. Yeah. You know, so as long as you're not making it with that sour mix out of the soda gun, you know, oh, if you're really yeah. using real lemon juice and a, and a exactly. simple syrup, it's great, yeah. great drink. No, no, it's fantastic. And you know, and they could have punched it up with a stronger, you know, I I I, I like to see a, a a more stout bourbon put in it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think because they just used Jim Beam in it, and uh, but I think something with a little bit more rye and that could have been kind of interesting. At least it would have fit my, you know, my preference. But something like that, and I think just you know, as you, as you, I'm sure that you you attest to, is to make them fresh, 
Um, don't be afraid to experiment and give it a shot. Um, you know, be careful. You know, some of the more traditional ones are going to be a little more whiskey forward. Mm -hmm. So you might have to start with something a little more creative. Um, but there's a lot, lot to enjoy. And I think that's just once again, part of the journey. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting with cocktails too. Um, the, uh, certain brands will work better in certain drinks and, you know, that's not something that, all bartenders give a lot of thought to, you know, you have, usually you have your well, you have your call and you have your premium, you know, but it's, um, you know, certain brands will work better in certain cocktails for sure. You know, oh, and that, that's something that I've uh, been exploring lately and, and, uh, putting more thought into, uh, especially as I, um, meet all these interesting distillers and people that are making these products and are so passionate about them. You know, there's something about a, um, a St. Louis, uh, whiskey event. I saw on your blog. Is that something you're involved in, or um... yeah? So what I I try to do um, a couple times a year is hold some sort of tasting events, things of that nature. And we've had a lot of fun. But there's a gentleman by the name of Mike Veach, and he's a, a historian, works for the Filson Historical Society in Kentucky, and he's literally written the book or books uh, about bourbon history. He had one that came out this year, which kind of really dove in and, and helped to sort of blow apart some standard myths about where things came from. And he had been putting on this multi-week bourbon academy, and he decided this year that he wanted to take the show on the road. And so in talking to him and finding more about it, um, was, you know, really excited that he agreed to bring it to St. Louis. So on November 9th, uh, he's coming and bringing the Filson, uh, historical society bourbon Academy to St. Louis. It's a eight hour, um, event. So you're there from nine in the morning to five and he's going to talk all about bourbon, all about American whiskey. He's going to tell you where it came from. He's going to answer questions. He's going to blow myths apart. He's going to let us drink. Um, so there'll all be right. some tastings of different stuff. So he's going to, you know, as I said, well, you know, history is better when you can put it in context. You know? So <laughs> when you can put it in a glass, <laughs> right? Put it in a glass. So you'll do that. It'll give you some great study materials. You know, get a little Glen Cairn glass. You walk out with a certificate. You become a member of their of the Filson Historical Society for a year. Which so if you find yourself down in Kentucky and uh, their the area, you can you can get some discounts and get access to some stuff. So it's just a great day. So he's going to come in, do that, hang around. You know, it's going to be a lot of whiskey knowledge in a short amount of time. But should be a, a a fabulous day. I haven't met anyone who's actually attended either one of his traveling events or his uh, the original one, who hasn't thought that it was just a tremendous experience and came out that much smarter as a result. Cool, cool. Have you ever been to uh, Whiskey Fest here in New York? Not in New York. I uh, actually, you know, it's kind of you know I look at the milestones as I, as I'm blogging, right? Because it's it's not my day job. And uh, I actually last year got my first press pass was to Whiskey Fest in Chicago. Oh, nice. And so I went up and attended that. And, you know, I had been to St. Louis last year and the winter had an event called Whiskey in the Winter. And it was a whiskey festival that kind of came out of nowhere. You know, I'm, I was kind of, you know, I try to keep up with what's going on in St. Louis as well as nationally. And, you know, blah, blah, blah. And also in this Whiskey in the Winter, I'm like, where the hell did this come from? Um, so we had one here and it was really cool. And so then I went to Whiskey Fest and basically they had modeled the one here in St. Louis off of Whiskey Fest, right? So mm -hmm. I went got you know vip access to go to it which is cool so i got in early so i got to try a lot of rare things fabulous event and you know i talked to a lot of people there and they're like yeah we got a lot of wine events come here and they're like we have to tell you people at these whiskey events are so much nicer <laughs> <laughs> you know so not to rile up the wine drinkers out there but um no it was a great time and if no one is if, if people have never been to one of these events uh and but they do like bourbon or scotch or Irish, Japanese whiskey, whatever it may be, you, you owe it to yourself to, to save up the shekels and, and go to the event because it's just truly outstanding. I mean, great people, great food, great whiskeys all in one place. Um, a lot of seminars. You, you really can't, you know, have a better, you know, couple of hours 
um, quite frankly, than doing that. Not to mention you, then you meet people going out afterwards. But, right. you know, we're doing that. In fact, you know, Bourbon and Banter's uh, an event partner for the Whiskey in the Winter here in St. Louis in November. Um, and um, it's going to just be another fabulous event as well. So because not everybody can, you know, get to Chicago. Yeah. Um, so we're, we're going to bring a taste of that to us and uh, should be a, a fabulous event as well. That's great. That's great. I'd love to do something like that. But I tell you what, I would love to get to the one in New York because, um, you know, it's New York, one of my favorite cities. And uh, obviously that's kind of their signature event. So they're doing that uh, seminar day this year, which if if people are getting tickets to that, I think it's like 400 bucks. Yeah, but it's so expensive. Um, they're tasting some super rare stuff. Um, and that that would be very much worth it. You know, like I said, you know, you don't need to go out and buy a $4,000 bottle of bourbon. Yeah. Um, but if you can get an opportunity to have a glass of it for a couple hundred, exactly. that might be worth it. Yeah, yeah. And and it's so interesting. T- tasting them side by side, you really get a, an idea of the different profiles of the drinks, uh, of, the, of the different brands. And um, talking to people that make this stuff, you know, they're always so passionate about it. And it's, it's just so much fun. It's so much fun, yeah. I, I I haven't been to Whiskey Fest yet, but uh, I'm I'm hoping to make it this year. But uh, but the uh, the other events I've been to, you know, the the uh, Manhattan Cocktail Classic is a big one, and the uh, Tales of the Cocktail in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. It's it's just the greatest time. Like you say, you can't overstate how how uh, how much fun it is and how 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 to change your life almost. You know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, it really make it, it brings that passion that the people make that are making this stuff to you. Mm-hmm. as i see it so all right well thank you so much for talking to us and oh, it's been a blast yeah yeah we'll have to stay in touch and um you know maybe we'll meet up at one of these events one day oh, that'd be awesome and you know just as you know you're continuing your personal bourbon journey you know i suggest you if you haven't seen it already go back to uh, bourbonbanner.com and do search for our uh Bourbon flavor wheel. Okay. And, uh, you know, this is a, a tasting wheel, basically, you know, like you've seen for scotches or for wines. And um, print it out, take a look at it. And when you're sitting down with your, just yourself or a couple of friends, it's a great way to, as, you, as you're starting to drink, start identifying some of the flavors that you might be getting. You know, because once again, you may be tasting chocolate, but not realize it or believe it. Yeah. yeah. And then you look at the wheel and say, hey, look, it's okay to say chocolate because it's on this wheel. <laughs> right. And, you know, while, you know, taste is always subjective. Um, it's a great starting place, and it's something that whenever I do my dinners and my blind tastings, everybody gets a copy because it's just kind of a that central point to work from. So it's something that's really popular with everybody comes to the site, and uh, I think you'd enjoy it, and especially as you said, you start picking a couple down and you know two or three bourbons, you want to do a little tasting at home, and that's another good takeaway for people is invite some friends over, pick up a couple different bourbons, and sit down, have a tasting. You can find plenty of information how to do it, but I think the big thing is just don't be scared. Dive in. Find what you like, find what you don't like, um, and, uh, you know, it'll be something you can enjoy for uh, years. Great, great. Thank you. You want to tell everybody, uh, so we talked about bourbonbanter.com as your blog, and uh, you have uh, Twitter and Facebook things you want to tell people about? Sure, absolutely. Um, so bourbonbanter.com is the website. Um, we're on Twitter, uh, at, and our handle is bourbonbanter as well. Um, we're also on Facebook. So facebook.com slash bourbon banter. We were lucky to keep everything consistent. We're on Instagram. We're on Pinterest. We're on Google Plus. We're, we're everywhere. All right. Our, you know, our mission is to spread the bourbon gospel. So we've got to be everywhere that there's people. Drop us a note. You've got questions. We can answer you. Uh, we even have a phone number on the site. And I get calls all the time for people looking and asking questions. And if I don't know, um, I'll do what I can to find somebody that knows because there's a lot of people out there that are way smarter than me. <laughs> um, and those are the people that I like to make friends with because, you know, as I said, we're all in it together. And every person that falls in love with bourbon is another person, you know, spreading spreading the gospel, so to speak. 
Great, great. Well, thanks again, Patrick. We really appreciate it. All right, appreciate it. Take care. So that's our show for this week. That was a good interview. Informative. I hope you learned something. I know I did. And um, come on back next time. We'll have, I don't know what we're going to do next week, interviews or bartender stories and tricks and knowledge and all the stuff we usually do. So please subscribe on iTunes if you haven't already or Podbean, however you do it. And um, get in touch. I am Vince. On email, you can find me at vince.bartender at gmail.com. On Twitter at Barkeep Tips. And don't forget our website is bartenderjourney.weebly.com. And on Instagram, I am Vince Bartender, without a dot, just Vince Bartender. And, um, you know, get in touch. We want to hear from you, talk to you, interview you maybe. And um, don't forget my buddy Vano. The other half of Bartender Journey, you can get in touch with him too. He is bartender2222 at gmail.com. That's his email. And on Twitter at Vance Vano. All right, we'll talk to you next time. Cheers. Mm-hmm.